Our scripture text this morning is in the book of Romans in the New Testament, book of Romans chapter 14, and I'll be reading verses 7 through 12, the 14th chapter of Romans, on page 1393 if you use the Bible in the rack. We're continuing a sermon series taken from the book of Joshua and Judges on what it means to experience victory in the Christian life. What does it mean to be a winner, not just merely a survivor? but a winter in the midst of this rapidly decaying and degrading culture in which we live. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So this morning I want us to go to the New Testament, Romans chapter 14 at verse 7, where we find one of the great passages of Scripture that describes the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what it means to submit to him. So Romans chapter 14, beginning at verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For this, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother, regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning during this time of worship and during these difficult times in our nation and in our world, We ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that he would lead us in all truth. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be our encourager, that he might give us strength and comfort. And we ask that your Holy Spirit might convict us concerning both sin and righteousness, that we might not be merely hearers of the word, but also doers of the word, as we wholeheartedly obey you in all things, And for this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture text this morning out of the book of Romans displays the glory of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What it means that Jesus is Lord. And it's against an extremely dark and ugly backdrop. It's a a black backdrop where the Christians in Rome in the early church were criticizing one another And we're literally, the Greek word means despising one another. Going at each other instead of submitting to the Lordship of Christ. The Lord who saved them, the Lord who redeemed them, the one who leads them in victory. You know, a man once said, and these are his words, I was walking across a bridge one day and I I saw a man standing on the edge. He was about to jump off. I immediately ran over and said to him, Stop! Don't jump. Why shouldn't I, he asked. I said, well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Well, are you religious or atheist? Religious. He said, me too. Well, are you a Christian or Jewish? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Well, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Original Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? 
Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879, or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. To that the man said, die you heretic scum, and he pushed him off. (laughs) I'm sure that's not a true story. (laughs) And it sounds ridiculous, but as we will see in the early church at Rome, that there are always going to be some within Christianity that are that critical, that negative, and that condemning, of other Christians. That is, if you don't believe exactly as they believe, and you don't live exactly as they think you should live, then they make it their job to knock you down. And the sad thing is, they think they're doing the work of God. One of the things I appreciate about the Christian churches and pastors that we have here in the Emmett Valley and in Jim County is our really neat fellowship together. Sure, we have what are called our distinctive doctrines and our practices that are different. The difference in how we go about do things, doing things, whether it's the Lord's Supper or, or whether we do it once a month, once a week, or, or whenever, and uh, what we emphasize as a church. But we recognize foremost and utmost that we, in all the churches here in Emmett, that claim the name of Christ, we are the body of Christ. We are his body. We recognize that we are Christian brothers and sisters, striving to fellowship with one another and serve the Lord Jesus best we can on a regular basis. We meet together as pastors, and when we have those opportunities, we have those community services that are so, so blessed and wonderful to meet together. And our main goal is the same, to evangelize the lost and to disciple them in the, in the name of Jesus so they might become who God wants them to be in Christ. But here's the thing, and we see this biblically, and we also see it historically over and over again. As Christianity is less and less tolerated in a culture, and we live in that culture, and Christianity is more and more overtly and openly criticized and criminalized in a culture, and we live in that culture, some of those who profess to be Christians start to take it out on other Christians. The issues that society faces tend to polarize those who, who claim to Christ, even to the point that those who claim to be Christians will openly persecute other Christians. And our culture continues to decline more and more in America as our faith is more and more polarized and more and more criminalized, then our fellowship, even as the body of Christ in little old Emmett, is going to be at risk. So we must resist that which works against us. If we are to be victorious in Christ, and that is our theme, we must also work together as the body of Christ in our community to work against this. You know, a lot is said about what God has done in China over the years, how the home churches have grown and millions have come to the Lord. And we talk a lot about how when God allows the fires of persecution, the gospel spreads like wildfire. Our brothers and sisters over at First Baptist Church had that on their reader board this week. Something about persecution just spreads the gospel. You know, and they're they're exactly right. All that is true. But we don't often hear how one church persecutes another church in in China. In China, there's the three-self church, which is registered with the government. Then there's the various home church movements, and then there are the cults 
And when I was working at Insight for Living in International Ministries, we received a, a letter from a man who lived on a mountainside outside of China, outside of a town in China, rather. And uh, what I could tell from the letter, he either lived in a cave up on the side of this mountain, away from everybody, or he lived in an old shanty shack of, of some kind. He didn't get out much, as you can imagine. But he did have a short-weight radio, and he's listening to Insight for Living on the radio on a regular basis, and he received Jesus Christ as his Savior one day, just there in the, on the floor of, of this shanty shack. So he decided what to do next. This is what Chuck Swindoll said you should do next. You need to go to church. You need to fellowship with other believers. So one Sunday, he walked down the mountain. He ventured to go out, and he got on a bus, and he was hoping to find a church. With him on the bus, also on the way to church, was a member of the Three Self Church. There was a couple who fellowshiped in a home church, and then there was a couple who were Jehovah's Witnesses. And they all got into a big argument on the bus claiming that they were the true church and they were pointing figures at each other and telling how each one's a heretic and those kind of things, what was evil and wrong with the other churches. And as you can imagine, he never made it to church that day. I thought, isn't that the way Satan works? You know, the first time he comes, he's going to go to church and boom. You know, confused in despair, he writes to Insight for a Living. What shall, what shall I do? Uh, the book, The Heavenly Man, is the remarkable story of a persecuted Christian in China by the name of Brother Yoon. I think some of you around here have read The Heavenly Man. What a neat book. Brother Yoon faced severe and overwhelming persecution and torture at the hands of the government in China. And the book, The Heavenly Man, recounts what the Holy Spirit is doing in the hearts and the lives of God's people in China. But while Brother Yoon was preaching a series of messages uh, and doing a series of meetings in Canada, there was a Christian journalist in California who wrote a series of scathing articles that brutally attacked Brother Yoon. The journalist claimed that Brother Yoon was a fraud, but Brother Yoon said that wasn't the worst of it. He said he was used to being persecuted and lied about, but not in America, not in America. So Brother Yoon wrote, there were two parts of the article that hurt most. It revealed my family was hiding in Myanmar, which placed them at great risk. I feared for their safety. Not only was I concerned that the Myanmar authorities would read the article and start searching for them, but the Chinese government would also love to have them sent back to China and punished. I've been looking forward to spreading or spending Christmas with my family in Myanmar. The previous year, which was 1999, was the first Christmas in 13 years I'd been able to spend with my wife and children. I'd been in prison for seven of those Christmases and on the run from the authorities or otherwise indisposed at Christmas for five additional years. Now because the article publicly revealed my family's whereabouts, it looked as I wouldn't be able to travel to Myanmar for Christmas. I was deeply upset. And Brother Yoon's wife, Day Ling, wrote of this. Day Ling wrote, Our lives have been filled with hardships, great suffering, and long periods away from each other, but also with great victories and experience of God's deep love and grace for us. I haven't been very lonely because of the children. They've been with me. They've been a great comfort to me. The biggest cross and most pain I've had to endure is not from poverty or persecution, from unbelievers or from loneliness, 
The hardest thing has been when the church started to spread false rumors about my husband. To this day, I don't understand why some brothers could be so devious in spreading lies about a brother who so honestly tries to serve the Lord and love people. And Daylene continues, Yoon often tells me, we are absolutely nothing. We have nothing to be proud about. We have no abilities and nothing to offer God. The fact that he chose to use us is only due to his grace. It has nothing to do with us. If God should choose to raise up others for his purposes and never use us again, we'd have nothing to complain about. Whenever God does a great work, there's going to be what is known as friendly fire. We see it in China. It could be seen in the Great Awakening in our country. When the church was polarized between those that were called the old lights and the new lights. You can probably picture them in your mind already. The old lights and the new lights. And no one was used more of God in the Great Awakening than Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. God used his preaching to light the spark of revival across the land. Many of you have heard of that great sermon. It's still known today, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher that he was, he would write out his manuscripts, his sermon, word for word, and he'd put it before him on the pulpit. He would pick a spot in the back of the church, and he would look up once in a while. And as he was preaching that sermon, the Holy Spirit was moving in the congregation. And people fell to their knees, weeping, repenting before God. And he would say, now hold it, hold it, I need to finish. (laughs) You know, typical preacher, let me finish my message here. But God used him. And then preachers like George Whitfield and Samuel Davies carried the torch of revival across the colonies in our new land. Jonathan Edwards, in fact, was the first pastor to introduce a hymn into one of the churches in the colonies. Jonathan Edwards was a personal friend of Isaac Watts, who was the great hymn writer in England, who wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And Jonathan Edwards was the first one, his church, First Church of Boston, was the first church in the colonies to ever sing what we know as a hymn. But the old lights in Jonathan Edwards' church weren't going to stand for it. Hymns in the church? (laughs) And they used, of all things, the issue to get rid of him was that Edwards taught that pastors should be converted. You heard me right. Edward maintained that if a man stood in the pulpit and proclaimed the word of God, he should be saved. And for that, he was fired from his church. So he went to minister among the Indians for several years. And uh, he wrote David Brainerd's uh, biography at that time, which was a marvelous, God-filled, spirit-filled man who ministered to the Indians during that time. We never would have heard David Brainerd if Jonathan Edwards hadn't had the time to write his, his biography. But someone has said that in the military, friendly fire is right intentions in the wrong direction. But in the church, friendly fire is wrong intentions in the wrong direction. Ouch. According to that definition, it's not friendly at all. It's, it's unfriendly. And the question is not whether it's going to happen in America. The question is, or the issue is it's already happening in America. 
Just Google any high-profile, Christian, effective, godly man or woman of God who's making an influence in our, in our world and in our nation, whether it's Billy Graham, Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, I could just go down the list. Google them, and you'll be surprised at these hate blogs that come up and start discrediting these people, calling them heretics, saying they're part of the apostasy of the last days. It's just thick on the web, and it just wants to make you weep and grieve over this. So what do you do when the fire comes from those that you think should be on your side? And it comes from those who judge you, whether it's a big judgment, a little judgment, and therefore regard you with con contempt. Victory in the Christian life, victory as believers in Christ, if we're going to really know victory, it, it requires resisting those who would want to knock down other Christians so they can build themselves up. That's what they do. And it requires not participating in any way in this stuff, in the judgment of fellow believers. Both the Bible and history have shown us that whenever God does a great work or the culture turns up the fires of persecution, the so-called friendly fire also ensues for the purpose of thwarting the work of God, trying to prevent the victory of God's people. Romans chapter 14 contains one of the most glorious descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's contained in the context where the Christians in Rome were condemning their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They were treating them with contempt. As I said, literally that word contempt means to despise. They were judging them because they did not practice the Christian life exactly like they did. They were judging and condemning one another, as if you looked at the first part of Romans chapter 14. They were condemning one another for what they drank. They were condemning one another for what they ate, what day of the week they worshipped. And those are just a few examples how they judged one another, how they despised one another, based on how they thought somebody else should live the Christian life. And the bottom line is the Apostle Paul is going to show us here that no matter what the particular practice might be for which one Christian or one professing Christian might judge another Christian, judge a brother or sister, whether it's a child of God in your own church or a child of God in the church down the street, the reason that Christians might succumb to such an ungodly and damaging practice is on account of their own lack of submission to the Lordship of Christ. And that's where we pick it up in Romans chapter 14 at verse 5. We leave that black backdrop for a while and we see the glorious light of God's truth of who he is as Lord and who we are as his, his servant. Winning in the Christian life means submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's where the Christian walk begins, submission to the Lord, because without submission... There's no victory of any kind. Without submission to his lordship, Christians fall into the trap of judging other Christians. And they throw away the victory. We hear a lot these days about the victory being thrown away in Iraq or the victory thrown away someplace else. How, how even more tragic when a spiritual victory is thrown away. So that's where we pick it up in verse 7 of Romans chapter 14. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. 
So the question is, we are the Lord's. How did we come to belong to the Lord? And what does that mean? So I want you to turn over to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, at verse 19, page 1401, if you use the Bible in the rack. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthians to flee immorality, to flee the immorality of their corrupt culture. He is telling them how they should live as Christians in such a de degenerate place. Now that they belong to the Lord, how should we live? And in doing so, he makes a remarkable statement. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. There it is. You are not your own. You don't belong to you. Turn to the person next to you and say, I don't belong to me. <laughs> we don't. When you received Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God came to live inside of you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are his dwelling place. The Bible also says that the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a pledge, a guarantor who fulfills everything that he has promised. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. In him, writes the Apostle Paul, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. God has put his seal on your life, on your soul, on your spirit, on your body. And what happens with your life now is totally up to God. It's totally up to him because he has taken up permanent residence in you. And therefore, you don't belong to you. You belong to God and God has paid dearly for it. Verse 20 of this first, uh, first Corinthians chapter 6. For you have been bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body. So first of all, you are a temple of the living God. God has put his seal on you, and by his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has pledged, guaranteed, that he will fulfill everything he has for you. And that you don't belong to you if you are a Christian. And secondly, Jesus paid for you with his precious blood. So you don't belong to you. What do we call someone who doesn't belong? Or what do we call somebody who does belong to somebody else? Slave, yeah. The Greek word is doulos. Literally, it means a slave, but since we have a uniquely American view of slavery in this country, doulos is usually translated in our Bible, servant or bond slave. Doulos was the Apostle Paul's favorite description of himself. He most often introduced himself as a bond slave or a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a bond slave in those days was someone who found themselves in the horrible position of having an enormous debt a debt that they could never pay or repay. So the person would have to sell himself, his family, and everything that he owns, everything he possesses, to somebody, and that money was used to pay off his debt. 
And so he'd sell himself to a master. That master would pay off the debt. But now everything that he is, everything that's available to him, including his family, belongs solely to the master. Most often this kind of slavery lasted a lifetime, and it lasted the lifetime of your kids, who were also bond slaves of the master. They still served the master. They were still owned by the master. And it was almost impossible for somebody to to somehow on the side or whatever earn enough money to buy one's own freedom. In fact, in the Roman Empire, the entire Roman Empire, over half the population were slaves. Over half were slaves. But if the debt was somehow paid off, the master to whom the debt had been owed now would write canceled on what was called the certificate of debt. Write canceled. We'd say paid in full. The, the master would write canceled on the certificate of debt owed, and the certificate of debt was a list of all the amounts, all the debts that this person was owed, and that list, long or short, would be posted in a public place, and on that certificate, the master would write canceled so that everyone would know that the person is now free and the debt had been fully, fully paid. The Bible tells us that everybody who's born into this world is rapidly accumulating debt. Not monetary debt, but a sin debt. It's bad enough that our federal government is $18.1 trillion in debt and climbing. The public debt per taxpayer, per taxpayer is $161,200. That's your portion if you're a taxpayer. I heard a lot of jeez with that. <laughs> Per person, it's $41,000 and climbing. The moment your child or your grandchild is born into this world, thanks to Uncle Sam, they are slapped with a $41,000 debt in growing. That it's eventually going to come due. Happy inheritance, kids. <laughs> but far worse, we are born into this world with a sin nature. A sin nature that we inherited from our first father, Adam. And since we are sinners by nature, what? We sin. And every time we sin, it's a debit against our very life. And when it eventually comes due, it takes our life. Whether it's a small debt or a large debt, it takes our life. The reason for our debt is our sin. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's what pays death. And before you know it, payment will be demanded. The note will come due. And one of the things that people don't understand is that, yes, you can pay your own sin debt. You can pay it off. How? By dying. By being eternally separated from God for all eternity, that will pay off your sin debt. But the entire time you are living, you are a slave to sin. That's what slavery means. Jesus said that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, a due loss to sin. You get up in the morning, you're bound by sin. You go to bed tonight, you are still bound by sin. And as slaves to sin, every time we sin, the debt accumulates. It accumulates more and more debt that demands payment, and that payment is death, eternal separation from God who is holy. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus died on the cross to pay your sin debt, to pay it in full. 
And your sin debt is that list of decrees that have built up against you, each one demanding the payment of eternal death. And Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 says that when Jesus died on the cross, that that list of decrees against us that demands our death, you know, in my mind kind of works funny because, you know, I see the list, you know, somebody on Carol Burnett or somebody takes out this list and it just falls to the floor. <laughs> you know, I picture my list of decrees against me as opening up and just flowing out, flowing out. That's a long list. It was posted to the cross of Jesus Christ. And with the blood of Jesus, God wrote canceled across that, paid in full to that list that was hostile to us and demanded our list. Jesus paid it all. God took it out of the way. He canceled your sin debt, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus paid that debt that you could never pay yourself except by your own eternal death. He paid it in full with his own blood. So the moment you receive Jesus Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. You no longer have a death sentence hanging over you. The Son of God has made you free. That's good news, but don't get the idea that since you have received Jesus Christ, you're no longer a slave. You still don't belong to you. You belong to the Lord Jesus who paid for your sins and having bought you off the auction block of sin, having paid your, pay, your debt, now he has become your supreme master and Lord. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. What does freedom mean? Let me just give you briefly two or three things. What does freedom in Christ mean? One thing it means, I have the freedom not to sin anymore. Did you ever think of that? I have the freedom not to sin. Through the Holy Spirit who lives in me, I have the freedom not to do that when I am tempted. For the very first time in Christ, now I have the freedom not to do that. Another thing it means that I have the freedom to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, I have the freedom to follow him, to obey him. But mostly it means that I have the freedom to live and act in such a way that everything that I do will bring glory to God, God who loved me, who redeemed me, so that I might be his servant. Instead of messing up my own life over and over again, I have the freedom to serve the Lord Jesus Christ who knows every good and perfect thing that he has for me. Everything I don't know what is good, he knows, and he's going to do that. Not one of us lives to himself, said Paul. Not one of us dies to himself. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Back to Romans chapter 14 at verse 9. It says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Think of it this way. Whom did you receive when you came to Jesus in salvation? Who, who, who did you receive? Let's go back to Romans chapter 10 a little bit. Romans chapter 10 at verse 9. How does Romans chapter 10 say we are saved? All the Awana kids memorize these verses. This is on the list. Back in chapter 10 at verse 9, it says... That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, 
Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him shall not be disappointed. Now, as independent thinking Americans, we like to have a smorgasbord approach to faith. I like that savior idea. I'll take that. And I like that about the Holy Spirit. I'll take a little bit about that with that. And I really love that idea of spiritual gifts that God would give something to me. So I'm going to have that. But that Lord stuff, I think I'll pass this time. Now, you either take the Lord Jesus for all that he is or you don't take him at all. All that he offers, all that he requires, you take all that he is. Verse 13 says, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now the question arises, and it's a good question because I'm asking it. No, it's just a good question. Does that mean that we have to understand everything there is about Jesus being Lord or everything that Jesus is and who he is in order to be saved? Of course not. The Apostle Peter said we are to grow in respect to salvation. We grow in these things. Now, when I got married, I stood before the minister and I said, I, Bill, take you, Jan. I took Jan. I didn't take part of her. I didn't promise to take the parts that I like. I took Jan. I didn't say, well, I take her as chief cook and bottle washer. If I'd said that, she would have been down down the aisle and out of there. I took Jan. I took Jan for all that I knew her to be at the time, and I said, I do. And I've spent the last 40 years figuring out what I have done. (laughs) And it's been good. It's been glorious. I take Jan. I do. I took her for all that she is and all that she will be, we say for better, for worse. I wish we could change those words and say, I take her for everything she's going to be in Jesus Christ. In fact, I may add those to the the wedding vows. Because I didn't know what she was going to be or who she was going to be, but I take her, I take her who she is. And one of the neat things in our married life together is we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have children. We take them too. And they're going to be what God wants them to be in Christ. When I took Christ, and that's what the word translated received literally means. For as many as received him. Literally means for as many as took him. To them he gave them the power to become children of God. I didn't know everything that it meant to take Christ. But through the Holy Spirit, it's receiving all that Jesus is. And he is Lord. The New Testament refers to Jesus as Lord almost 750 times. 750 times. He is Lord. You can't receive Jesus and only take part of him. You take him for who he is. And you take him for all that he will do as as Lord. And to the best of my limited understanding at the time, and I was only five years old, maybe six, I think I was five, I take Jesus. I received the Lord Jesus. I confess him as Lord. And as I grew in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, I continue to submit myself to his lordship as he more and more reveals himself to me. And that is the essence of saving faith.
That is the faith on which God puts his seal, the Holy Spirit of promise. And where we can be assured that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That he would be both Lord of the living and the dead. Victory in the Christian life always means submitting ourselves, surrendering ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. And without that, there's no victory. Victory requires surrender. But victory also entails something that must be resisted. If you're trying to follow the outline, you're, you're probably way lost by now. If we are to be victorious, we must stand against the unfriendly fire. And we must resist participating in it. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul returns to the practice of judging our brothers or our fellow believers our brothers and sisters, we're back to that not-so-friendly fire. Verse 10 of Romans chapter 14. But you, why? Why do you then, with everything that we've seen here, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself, to God, each one of us. We're going to have to bring it to an end here, but uh, this is what we need to take away from this. This is the key to not becoming judgmental in our Christian life and criticizing our brothers and sisters. The, the Greek word for judge is crino, the Latin is crites. Does that sound familiar? We get our word critic from it. Do not criticize, do not judge. The, the Pharisees established their own standard of measure. And Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged. We could translate, do not criticize lest you be criticized, for by your standard of measure you will be criticized. So they would set up their own standard of measure, whatever that was, whatever they thought they could keep, and then they would stand on that big platform and they would point their fingers at everybody else and say, you don't live up to the standard. You're not really a Christian. You're really not a godly person. You're not this. You're not that. You believe this. That's wrong. And, and uh, Jesus said, by your standard of measure to the Pharisees, you will be judged. And they won't even be able to live up to it. And the key to not falling into that trap to resisting the judgment and, con and condemnation of others is to go before the Lord our God to whom one day we will stand and we will bow one on one, just me and God. And I've got to tell you, I've got enough of my own life I have to give an account for. <laughs> and when we give an account before God, 1 Corinthians says it's going to be tested by fire. All of our works are going to be tested by fire. And that which was of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to survive like precious jewels and, and gold and will receive a reward. And everything else is going to be, to be burned up. You know, the thought of standing before God and the best I can offer is I tried to straighten that person out. And I tried to straighten that person out. And this person didn't have their theology right at all. And, and that person, man, they believe such and such. You know, boy, flamethrower city. When it, 
am standing before God. I don't want to face that. I've got enough of my, of my own. And with that attitude of how we are bow the knee on a regular basis before the Lord and surrender to him, that keeps us mindful of that glorious day when we will bow before him in glory. And then he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Shall we pray? Father, it's just time to, to thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We talk about our, our military men and women and those who sacrifice and give their lives that we might enjoy our freedoms. And, and Father, we take that sacrifice and, and that gratitude that we have for them and multiply it a million times a million times for the, the gratitude that you don't hold us account for each or any of our sins because Jesus has paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Amen.